1: Om Mani Hung is the jewel in the lotus mantra It refers to the Buddha within, or that all the possible potential enlightened qualities of Buddhahood, of enlightenment, of ultimate goodness and evolution, are within our own spiritual unfolding, not to be found elsewhere, outside. They're within our own spiritual blossoming, like the jewel revealed when the lotus opens and unfolds and unclenches. So, tonight's subject is the secrets of Tibetan mindfulness. Mindfulness is such a, a well plowed field today. We hear about it everywhere. It's entered the mainstream. Let me say the mainstream, I get those two confused. The mainstream of society. Mindfulness is hot. Mindfulness is being studied and researched. Science is proving that it's beneficial. It must be good for us. Who knew mindfulness was better than mindlessness? But now we have proof from neuroscience. Even over at Stanford, they're studying it. Which is great. We too could be studying it and practicing it and finding out more about it and not just settling for some overly simplistic idea of it like just being here now. every kind of living creature is here now, and also the rocks and the trees. But how enlightened, awakeful, altruistic, loving are they? So for us who feel moved, compelled, to take the spiritual journey, to practice Dharma, study and practice (coughs) spiritual teachings, to cultivate wisdom and love, awareness, Kindness, etc., unselfishness. Mindfulness is the active ingredient. Awareness is the alpha and omega, the beginning and end, the ground path and result or fruit of the Buddhist path of enlightenment. But what is mindfulness? If I went around the room, we might get a few different definitions, wouldn't we? And in a way, I'm sure they would all be good. So tonight, I want to do a little let's call it masterclass in mindfulness. It's such well plowed ground that I thought I should try to find something original or different than we haven't heard yet. Let's see if we can do that. So what is mindfulness anyway? Mindfulness is one of the seven factors of enlightenment taught by Buddha. Maybe you're familiar with that from studying the sutras the seven ingredients in Buddha's recipe for awakening, technically known as the seven factors of enlightenment. I used to know these things by heart. (laughs) Things like balance, stability, concentration, mindfulness is the main one. And this is very important to realize that we develop these and we too can be enlightened. If we look at the Eightfold Path, Buddha's basic path that we're all somewhat familiar with from the Sutra tradition, from the basic teachings of Buddha and so forth, the Eightfold Path, we find that mindfulness is one important part of the path. I'm sure we're all familiar with the Four Noble Truths, I'm not going to go into all that tonight. And the fourth truth, which is the Eightfold Path, yes? That's not our subject tonight, but the Eightfold Path is comprised of the three trainings, the three enlightenment trainings. Sheila, Shila, Pali Shila, in Sanskrit, Sheila, something like that, or backwards. Anyway, her teacher named her Shila, Sheila, because of her integrity and morality, ethics, and character. So that's a beautiful thing. So in the three trainings of Sheila, in one week translation, ethics, samadhi, meditation or mindfulness, and punya, prajna, wisdom, the three trainings that comprise the Eightfold Path of wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise view, wise intentions, Wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. The eight-step enlightenment program that I hope we're all in. Mindfulness is one-third of this, the meditation part. But there are other parts, aren't there? Holy crap, who knew? Mindfulness isn't enough. I have to stop my wrong livelihood. Dealing drugs by the junior high school arms or whatever we're doing, and clean up our life and get straight so we can concentrate, meditate, and be present, not looking over our shoulder all the time, paranoidly. And develop wisdom and selfless love, etc. In the seven factors of enlightenment, Charlotte, do you remember what they are? I don't want to put you on the spot. It doesn't matter. Mindfulness, (laughs) you can look it up. Google and you shall find. Google is near here. Isn't? I mean, Google's everywhere. The seven factors of enlightenment
0: <clears throat>
1: three of them are said to be arising or giving energy, like effort and so on. Three of them are settling and pacifying, um, stabilizing, relaxing, concentration. And the pivotal one is mindfulness, often put first. I'm putting in the middle. Mindfulness is so key, but there are other factors. Just being aware, you know, present isn't enough. Being here now is not enough. You know, the sniper is also very be here now. Isn't he or she? Or the cat at the mouse hole. But we don't, I mean in Buddhist um, texts, call that mindfulness, we call that concentration. Maybe you're familiar with this idea. There's two kinds of meditation in Buddhism generally. Samadhi, shamatha. Tranquility or Concentration Meditation. And Vipassana or Insight Meditation. VIP, much more important than just concentration. The Sniper, the Cat at the Mouse Hole, etc. Barry Bonds at the Plate. Oh, he's a bad example. O.J. Simpson on the, fi- no, bad example. Who should I pick? Who do we like this year? Uh, Ted Williams? I'm from Boston. This is concentration, but this is wisdom here. Insightful wisdom, discernment. It's different than just concentration. How much discernment does the sniper have about universal laws, or the cat at the mouse, just perched with the predatory instinct? That's the concentration. So we develop concentration. These are two types of Buddhist meditation, according to the scriptures, the sutras, the suttas, whatever you want to call them, taught by Buddha. Concentration, tranquility, one-pointedness, wholeheartedness, what unifies the mind, focusing like a laser beam, all the scattered light of awareness. And then using that laser beam, that sharpened scalpel, to cut deep into the nature of reality, to see the nature of self and other, so-called not-self in Buddhism, to see everything as it is, impermanent and interdependent, and dissatisfying in the long run. Anicca, and and Dukkha. I'm going fast because I want to talk about mindfulness tonight. All this other stuff you've all heard. Also, you can read about it in books. Also, if you read My Awakening, The Buddha Within, Eight Steps to Enlightenment, it's all there. Basic. But the point is, there's more to mindfulness than just being here now or watching your breath. <clears throat> in the original languages, It's called Sati in Pali, Smriti in Sanskrit. I don't know what language you speak here in uh, Palo Alto. She's always correcting me, saying, no, it's Mountain View. She's very attached, very attached, that girl. (laughs) Sati, Smriti, in Tibetan, Drempa, it's really all the same word in variations, like Zen, Chan, Chan, Diana, same word, mispronounced. It refers to remembering. Remindfulness, remembering. Recollecting what you're doing while you're doing it. That's the essence of mindfulness. So there's a feeling of remindfulness. Remembering what you're doing while you're doing it. If you're breath watching, if you're concentrating on your breathing, the mind wanders remembering what you're doing and coming back to that that's the concentrative part and then staying with it and going deeper eventually becomes the insightful part anyway there's a feeling of recollecting the scattered energy and then using it to see deeper to be more present to understand universal laws so there's always the uh, step one on 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 the path is right view, I'm going to call it wise view, clear seeing Seeing things as they are. And step two, this is just basic Buddhism, the Eightfold Path, as you all know, is wise intentions or wise understanding. Understanding how things work. This is the wisdom section of the three trainings, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. You with me? That we just went over. So it's not just seeing things as they are, but understanding how it works. This is my point, friends. If mindfulness doesn't have this wisdom, this understanding part, then it's just being here now, which everything already is that way, including rocks, toads. I'm from New York, so you've got to think about the cockroaches. But what distinguishes us from them, and this is not really about discriminating in that way. How about this? People said to Buddha, what's the big deal about your monks? Why should we feed them? What's so special about them? They look very ordinary. This is in the sutras. And Buddha said, well, they look ordinary, but they have some very special features. Like unlike most people, when they stand up, they know they're standing up. And when they sit down, they know they're sitting down. That's one of their greatest virtues, their mindfulness. Now, it might not sound like a big deal, but if you're driving and you forget you're driving, it could be a big deal. Or if you fall asleep, or if you're intoxicated, or if you're multitasking too much. You with me? So mindfulness can be life-saving. It could also be enlightenment-produced saving. So not just wise view, like just being with the breath, but also understanding how things function, interdependent, interconnection, impermanence, and so on, universal laws. So the wisdom and insight is also there, not just the calm or clarity, which is more concentrative. This is very, very important. And today we hear a lot of... um, sort of denatured, or secular Buddhism, where it seems like it's enough just to be sitting there and present and not, you know, listening to music or whatever, you know, some other distraction or occupation, and it's not enough if we don't have the wise understanding. And this is not just mental insight, non-conceptual experience of not just the nature of things as they are, but how it works, interdependence impermanence, ownerless, it's not your thoughts, they're just thoughts coming and going, and so on. You with me? Non-self can also be translated as ownerless, no governor. It's a good translation of anatta, no separate self, no governor, no owner. Are these really my thoughts? Am I actually producing them? Are these really my perceptions? I really made those sounds come? That's why Buddha said, in hearing there is just hearing. And seeing, just seeing, nothing to listen to and no one hearing it. There's just the process. So this sati or smriti, in Tibetan it's called drempa. It's called. We usually call it the six close recollections. Recollecting, you know, if you talk about mindfulness, of course we all know it comes from the Sati Bhatana Sutra. Oh, I love when I talk dirty like this. It really turns me on. It reminds me of my beloved masters in India in the old days. Sati the four foundations of mindfulness. In Tibetan we call it the four close recollections. Recollecting, remember the mindfulness part. The form and the feelings. And then the perceptions and the reactions, you know, liking and disliking. And re- recollecting the mind stuff, the noumena, what's going on, the moods, the states of mind. You with me? And the fourth foundation, the universal laws. The nature of mind, the wisdom part, understanding Not self and impermanence and all that. So these are the four foundations of mindfulness, as everybody can tell you. I mean, it's general knowledge, nothing secret about this, just going over it. So now I did a little research on this because I knew I was coming here and I was going to have to talk in front of Shaila, who really is an awesome Buddhist scholar. You know, I like to tease her because she's so young and, and sweet and cute and, you know, not like me, I'm from New York. You know, more streetwise and, you know, cunning. <laughs> Not like Shiloh. You know, you can't find anybody more innocent and, and, and um, decent than her. That's why they call her Shila. decent, virtuous. So I asked Joseph Goldstein, the first patriarch of Buddhism, one of my buddies in Massachusetts, Joey, how many ta- kinds of mindfulness are there? Because we all know about the four f- foundations of mindfulness. We all know about two kinds of Buddhist meditation, concentration and insight. Oh, what about metta? I forgot. Where does that fit in? Oh, never mind. Anyway, this is the way it's always explained. Let's put metta in with concentration. For now, it doesn't matter. There may be other kinds of meditation, too, if you look in the sutras, you know? The round disks, the kashinas, and the jhanas, and other things. But in general, it's concentration and, and insight, meditations. So Joey Boy, who's a real expert on this, and I recommend to you his big uh, workbook and tape, it's probably a CD now, course called Mindfulness, I think, from um, Sounds True Catalog. It's wonderful. He's an expert Buddhist pioneer bringing mindfulness to the West. He taught John Kabat-Zinn and the others. So Joey said, there's two kinds. And as Joey said, he he says, I don't have any original thoughts ever. I only know that there's these two kinds. That's what Buddha taught. There's directed, like where you direct your attention to an object, like the breath is directed to a breath or candle watching or physical sensations. You're directing your attention, right? It's like you're directing your children. And then there's undirected or choiceless or panoramic this may have more effort, especially in the beginning. this may be more effortless later. but basically they have both kind of have some effort. Here the object is one that you pick, so it's called one-pointed meditation. And here it's more choiceless awareness. The objects, as they arise, you hear something, you're mindful of hearing, you feel something in your knee, you're mindful of physical sensation, and so on. Directed and undirected. the two basic kinds of mindfulness in the sutras. And we can all relate to this in our practice. We start, we have to concentrate on something just to be in the game, right? To stay in the room, to be in your seat. So in Buddhism, we usually start with Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. Kuenkaji starts with that, and then he goes to sweeping the body for physical sensations and observing impermanence. That's his portal to wisdom, no self, and dukkha. So this is very you know, general. In Tibetan Buddhism, we visualize something and just hold that in mind. That's the object of our attention. That's our concentration object. That's directed. And then eventually you let go of that and just be aware. It's a little more challenging, but it's also vaster. Chitta Vipassana, not just Vedana, sensation, sensation Vipassana, but Vipassana on the consciousness itself, Chitta Vipassana, more advanced Gawenka meditation, Chitta Vipassana from the Burmese Theravadin tradition. So, I've been thinking about that. Oh, and then somebody said, speculated, that there's probably, like, ordinary mindfulness, and then there's the mindfulness of the enlightened ones, the Arhats and Buddhas, which is kind of super mundane, So because it's not the same ego-mind at work. But I'm not going to go into that now. I'm just throwing this out, because this is like a master class. You don't hear this very much elsewhere, and it's something you can think about later, or ask your teacher. She's an expert on these matters. So... Over the years, I myself have come up with six kinds of of Drempa or mindfulness, that I use to help my students and myself understand what we're doing and where we're going, how we're practicing. First, there's natural mindfulness, attention. If you're really interested in something, so natural mindfulness, which is attention. If you're interested in something, you pay attention, right? If not, you don't. Buddha called it the mental factor of interest. I don't want to call it the interest factor. That gets confusing in our economic-minded days. So just basic attention, we all have it, and we use it depending on how interested we are. Put it here and there, right? We pay attention to this or that. And then there's generated mindfulness, which is usually what we call mindfulness. There's generated or fabricated mindfulness. We cultivate mindfulness, right? We try to be more mindful and keep our minds on something, like the breath, or the candle flame, or the mantra, whatever our object of attention is, our meditation object, whatever technique we're using. We generate, we fabricate, we build it up, take some effort. So generated mindfulness. And then this brings us, generally, we experience intermittent mindfulness. Anybody... Go through this, you know what I'm talking about in your own practice. So you have it, you know, but it's kind of intermittent. Sometimes you're more focused, and sometimes you're more distracted. So intermittent mindfulness. Another kind of mindfulness, just to sort of tease out the nuances of our practice, so we can guide ourselves better. And then fourth, I notice we arrive at a more stable or sustained mindfulness, almost where it sustains itself. Stable mindfulness. You know, in the beginning, we have to carry our practice. We have to c- try, cultivate, make a routine. It's like exercise, you know, you have to vow and make yourself do it every morning or meet somebody or have a trainer. So it, you, you try to make the habit of sitting and walking meditation, whatever your cultivation of mindfulness is. Let's say sitting to keep it simple. So then you develop this intermittent generated mindfulness, eventually you've carried it long enough it starts to carry you because it's stable you are more mindful generally in all of life or in areas of it at least just like when you get more healthy from exercise then you have more you know stable musculature it doesn't go flabby if you miss a day or a week so stable or sustained mindfulness which starts to carry you and then fifth is a more global or total mindfulness Where, as a Tibetan master says, everything is meditated. I love masters that can't speak English right. Because then they don't have to use the I and the dualisms. It's not you meditate on everything. He says, everything is meditated. That's global mindfulness. So that's where you're developing. But then even beyond that is like Dharmakaya or Buddha mindfulness. Where there's no subject, object, and interaction, non-dual mindfulness or awareness. You see here how we have subject, object, and interaction? Are you with me? This is traditional Buddhist thinking. This is not something I made up. This is original, but it's Buddhist thinking. All of these has a subject, a meditator, a meditation object, and the interaction. That's the three wheels of karma, the bumper cars of samsara that we experience all the accidents and friction and dukkha from. When you get down to here, Dharmakaya or non dual mindfulness, really awareness, we call it, to distinguish. Like in Zen, there's mind and Buddha mind, you know, if you read Zen books. If you read Vedanta books, there's the small ego centric separate self and there's the supreme self, selfless self. So this is like Dharmakaya mindfulness equals what we call in Tibetan awareness or Rigpa or something with a capital A. Not just my awareness, but pure presence. No subject, object, and interaction. That is wisdom. There's no other wisdom outside. Great transparency. So this is kind of a, in deepening order, we're going higher and higher. Deepening, whatever you want to call it. From the general attention we all have. Our innate attention. Everybody has attention. Even in a coma, there's some attention. People in coma sometimes hear and remember things. Anybody aware of that? They tell us, coma people, not just observers. Coma people, when they come back, they remember things they tell us. And we said, oh, you heard that? You couldn't move. They said, no, we heard that. and you know, We, we didn't want you to pull the plug. or well, we did want you to pull the plug. Why didn't you? Whatever. We hear those things. If you read Raising Lazarus by the Zen teacher Lou Richmond, it's a brilliant book about his deepest coma and his recovery. He's a very old... Zen practitioners, marvelous, raising Lazarus. So this is what I call six kinds of mindfulness. Something we can guide ourselves to, and when we notice we're slipping back into more, we need more effort to concentrate. That's fine, and but also let yourself relax back and, and get to the stable mindfulness that carries you throughout life. Does everybody know what Buddha said was the best posture for? Cultivating mindfulness. He didn't talk that much about meditation. He talked about cultivating mindfulness. Sati bhavana, cultivation of mindfulness, of heedfulness. Anybody know what, what did he say? the best posture was? Come on. He said there were four. I'll go slow. Sitting, standing, lying. Well, he said, let's get him in order class walking and lying down that pretty well covers it not just sitting you don't meditate with our legs crossed or or eyes closed the best posture to cultivate mindfulness is any posture if if he, if when he was alive if they had jogging he might have included that or thumbing you know he might have included that or spinning because what's the moral of the tale The best posture to cultivate mindfulness is any posture. What's the alternative? Mindlessness. What's the virtue in that? Friends, don't we want Dharma with benefits? That was a joke. We're going to get too serious here. So, when the mindfulness becomes more stable, and then global, choiceless awareness, panoramic awareness, some people call it, Then it carries us until we have some kind of breakthrough where we're not so much in the subject-object dualism, and things go from like black and white to technicolor, or you know, you you experience something different in one's habitual dualistic framework of me and things and it and I and you and outside and inside. I see time is running, but I want to just complete this with the Actually, from the Tibetan tradition, not my original thinking like that, the six kinds of drempa or mindfulness, just for you to think about, to see how the different traditions are different. The six kinds of mindfulness, I'll call them the drempas, which means the satis. I really have to look these up because nobody ever teaches these, so I don't remember exactly, but you don't have to either, unless you're interested. It's kind of because it, it's different. It's something different to think about. First, recollection. Is it some, a tr- good translator likes to call this recollection because it's kind of remembering, but not just like remembering the past. It's keeping in mind now recollection of, he translates these dream as mindfulness remindfulness or recollection recollection of the path to remember the four truths the eightfold path etc and live accordingly to keep it in mind as we're going about our days what wise view why is it as they are wise intentions seeing karma at work causation what causes what so we can choose more skillfully and so on wise speech white action wise livelihood, etc. Second, recollection of the view with the bigger picture. The goal of enlightenment, the ground of being, no self, dukkha, and so on. The enlightenment's possible, the bigger picture, all beings are suffering, you know, the bigger picture stuff. Not just views, not just uh. What's the word for views? Dritti. Not just dritti, as Buddha called it, views, but this is darshan, the bigger picture. Tawa, the view, the bigger perspective. Mahamudra, the biggest perspective. Darshan, seeing reality, not just views and opinions. So keeping in mind the bigger picture, your highest intuition. Or at least trying to remember that there is a there there if you don't feel you can rely on your intuition. You know, there is Buddha vision available. Third, as it says in the path, you know, the third noble truth is that there is nirvana, there is great peace available, there is Buddha vision. Third, recollection of the meditation or the practice so that you carry your practice with you. It says here the meditation, something, Recollection of the practice or the meditation. The keeping focus, keeping your eye on the ball as a spiritual practitioner, as a meditator, to cultivate mindfulness, loving kindness, the paramis, generosity and effort and patience and all that. Fourth, recollection. This is a tough one to explain. Tibetans love to talk about the la, the deities, the Buddhas. It's a very arid world there. So Tibetan Buddhism has filled up all that aridity with richness. That's their idea of religion. It's like in Japan when you go into a Zen temple, there's nothing there. That's the Japanese idea of something different than their everyday rich world. There's nothing. You know, like the Dalai Lama, you've all seen that New Yorker cartoon, he's opening this big box, it's wrapped in Christmas wrapping, and he's surrounded by the monk, old monks, and he opens a box and he goes, oh, just what I always wanted, nothing. So recollection of the deity, that means of the Buddha, or of Buddha nature, or of enlightenment as a possibility, as a reality. Recognition of the divine, of the sacred nature of things, of sacred vision, that we can see the light, the Buddha in everyone and everything. Recognition of that. What a practice that is. That's better than just concentrating on breathing, which is a means. This is like pretty close to the end, seeing the light, the Buddha, the divine in everyone and everything. Then you would naturally treat them as they should be treated. I'm not going to say as you would be treated because I know how you treat yourselves already. And it ain't that great sometimes. I think the new golden rule should be, treat others as you would have your beloved child to be treated, not as you would be treated. So if we see the deity in everyone and everything, we will spontaneously treat others differently. Fifth is recollection of the birthplace, another complicated one, but how about of the origin or of the ground, the basis? The context, maybe, in which everything is arising from and returning to, the unconditioned, however you want to explain it. They call it origin, the birthplace. In other words, not just being fascinated by what's on the movie screen, but looking at the projector and understanding the relation of projection, screen, projector, and the context that that's all occupying or occurring in. You with me? Subject, object, and interaction. The whole movie theater here. And sixth, recollection of the instructions. As my father used to say, do what I say and don't say what I do. The instructions, the Dharma teachings, or whatever you've learned of life experience. Of course, in a traditional culture, this would mean the holy Dharma, the sutras that you've memorized, and the vows that you've taken, and the practice that you've been given. But more generally, in modern talk, the wisdom of experience, as well as learning, theory, and also practice. The wisdom of your experience, your your intuition, where you've arrived at from living life. Let me go further. More important than remembering what's in the holy books is finding the truth, reality, dharma, in its deepest sense, in your everyday life, because that's the only place where we can experience it. Not in Tibet or in ancient times or in India or Burma. Finding the holy dharma, the truth, or buddha dharma and sangha in your own time and place at work or while you're shoveling the horse manure or gardening at home. Of course in houses of worship too, like this. Why not? We're driving in traffic. Why not? So remember the instructions. Be a good dharma student and listen up to the song of the Dharma and the wind and the rain and the birds and also the cats waking you up at night or the hunking of the horns that you don't like. Because there really is nothing that's unequivocally positive or negative, good or bad. It's only the wanted and the unwanted if we were really gonna put up a steep cliff to leap to the top of. Who can say that the cats growling when we want to be sleeping is bad? It's only bad from point of view of you, the sleeper. Maybe they're calling to their lost kitten. Who knows? So subjective. So these are six things to be mindful of, or to recollect, to keep in mind. It's it's an interesting kind of Tibetan enriched kind of psychedelic approach to the very simple practice of mindfulness, and we don't hear this every day. You know, in basic, at least if you remember, like, the triple gem, the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, that's right here. That's good to remember, to recollect. So there's more I could say, but I think I'm going to tie it up now by just giving Buddha's own examples of mindfulness. Well, maybe I'll limit it to one to keep it simple. I'm sure you've all heard this. Buddha said... The essence of mindfulness practice or cultivating mindfulness is be like a woman coming back from the village well with a big jug full of water on her head and holding her baby in her arms. So what word would we even use for that? Careful? Balanced? Gentle? Attentive? You think she's going to fall asleep while she's doing that? Probably not. Think she's going to reach out with her hands? to, I don't know, grab some bananas and papayas off a tree and drop her baby in the water jug? Probably not. Not going to get so easily distracted because she's so interested and devoted and loving and cares about bringing back the water for the family and all, right? So that's the image of mindfulness. Very present. Not just sitting cross-legged and not moving. Of course she has to be moving. But moving balanced and at the right speed. Stable. Seven factors of mindfulness again. Concentrated. Stable. Relaxed, focused, flexible, and so forth. So, I hope you can get something from that for your own life. Any questions, please? Yes, sir? uh, Choiceless awareness, okay. Did you ask? Where it is? What were you saying? I don't know. Sharla, what would you suggest in the suttas about choiceless awareness? Does that come up in the suttas in some language or other? Or is that like more of a modern translation? So I usually look at the Tibetan, you know, or Zen teachings about that, or listen to Joseph Goldstein or some American talk about choiceless awareness. Panoramic awareness, Chuggym Trungpa also writes about it in his books. Choiceless awareness, rather than choosing to just concentrate on a breath or a candle flame, that's more directed, choiceful. Choiceless awareness is more leaving it as it is and aware of whatever comes and goes as it comes and goes. You with me? So it's more panoramic awareness or sky-gazing-like rather than a narrow band like one-pointed focus-like. I'm sure if you Google Choiceless Awareness, you would get some good articles by Joseph Goldstein or other people. And they may be referring to different sutras. I don't know. Yes, it's on Dharmaseed, so you can just uh, get it there somehow. Dharmaseed.org. Questions, please. Yes, ma'am. Mhm. And then how, how to do the inside part because at that point you are so concentrated you you're very still and your mind kind of refuses to move. Wow, that's a bad problem most of us don't have. Right, that's that's stable samadhi. So then you take that and you apply it uh, depending on what technique you practice. Like, have you learned Vipassana or just this kind of samadhi? Like, looking at the impermanent physical sensation, taking that laser beam and sweeping the body with the physical sensations, looking into impermanence, or looking into the nature of self. Samadhi is supposed to develop into, you know, be used into some Vipassana concentrate, uh some kind of insight-oriented, wisdom-development, cultivation. So, so you mean that uh, it's related to your body It could be. That's just a technique. You could. Those are different techniques I'm asking you. Do you have something like that that we could talk about? Or Right. Charlotte, what do you teach them here? So can you carry that into walking while you're moving? You can still have the stable awareness. And one more question is, can the insight, if I don't deliberately do this kind of vipassana, can the insight arise by itself? Theoretically, yes. But I think it's good to help it a little. I mean, people can get insight without meditating at all, so why not? But in general, in Buddhist meditation, the concentration, samadhi, is supposed to be the means to the deeper end, applying that. Like, building up your muscles is not just to build up your muscles. It's to use them, or at least to be healthy, to pump your cardiovascular system or something. We're not muscle worshippers. We're not breath worshippers. We're not stillness worshippers. Stillness isn't good enough. That's a very temporary state. We build up like muscles, and if you stop working them, you become flabby or not still. But great peace is beyond the dichotomy of stillness and movement. That's where the insight is, not just stillness or, move- or virtuous movement. So let me suggest that um, if, si- since you sound like you have good samadhi, that you've developed that, that you try to use that to penetrate uh, some... Like to fertilize the field a little, like look into the impermanent experiences. Like um, after 45 minutes, maybe you lose that stillness, or what would you call it? Thought free state. What happens after 45 minutes? I
0: mean, one point.
1: Can you keep one point through this for an hour or two hours? Yeah. Three hours. Well, sometimes. Stay a little
0: bit, and then lose a little bit, and come back and lose Compose, time. yeah. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, I just do this, but uh, sometimes I hear that you should do, it. one of my friends advised me that uh, I should
1: learn how to do the Pasala. So, yes, yeah, I, that sounds like a good friend. <laughs> Are you doing this with your eyes open or closed? Uh, can you do it with your eyes open? Uh, you mean do Yeah. With eyes open? Mm-hmm. I
0: haven't tried.
1: So, can you do it when you stand up or walk around? Maybe it would be good to learn how to integrate this a little more. Otherwise, you're getting a little limited into like you're only prayerful in church, but you don't know how to pray outside or something. You see what I'm saying? It's cultivating a mindful awareness concentrate, so you can carry it into life, not just on your cushion. That, so maybe you could try with your eyes open and then be aware of the impermanent states of mind and perceptions and all, and then start to do a little walking. Or just standing meditation is good, you know, from here to here. And then once you master that, you do a little slow walking and see what, you know. Anyway, with a little instruction that all of this can come, because you seem like a natural meditator or concentrator. Yes, ma'am. The instructions. Now we're back to the six, my six kinds of mindfulness, that's the dharmakaya mindfulness. Beyond subject, object, and interaction. Yes. Yes. The tenth paramita, yes. Good catch. Questions, yes. Um, what you present here and what I
0: see in many Western uh um, Buddhist history is it's quite a big work of trans uh, cultural translation,
1: uh, like um deep teaches from one cultural network it and translated. And when I see mindfulness uh translated into American culture can everybody hear him? We're gonna learn something here from uh, Europe. Uh, like yeah, same. Us, them. You're the them. <laughs> go on, brother, dear brother. Go now. Go on. To stress reduction. Yeah. But, um, secular mindfulness, we call that. So that's my question. Like, right. The translation is usually secular. And as you said, it's good that there is this research is, uh, yeah. demonstrating right. finally that this thing is useful. But bring aspects of the Dharma into secular context and speak about um, sure. in Yeah, context. if you can, if you can speak about it in the non religious in secular terms. Yeah, sure. What are your thoughts about what should well I'm thinking about it constantly and we talked about this last week, you know, when we were in the desert and retreat and I talked about this with my colleagues at our Buddhist teacher meeting today in Marin County and everybody's thinking about this. So Let me tell you how it is. You decide, but I'm going to tell you how it is. According to me. Our um, South America, allegedly South American friend. (laughs) I mean, you never know here in, you know, virtual reality. (laughs) Is saying that the secular mindfulness is while being reduced. You know, Buddhism is being reduced to secular mindfulness, like mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, the great program of Kabat-Zinn that's in every hospital in the world, in the army and everywhere else, studying it. So it's becoming like secular Buddhism, secular. And is this losing the enlightenment and the wisdom and the ethical component? So, of course we're all concerned about that. but. For decades, those of us who have been involved in this for 40 years, we've been concerned that the religion has no connection to the secular people in the postmodern era who are not Buddhists and who you know, are atheists or Jews or, or whatever. You with me? Or scientists, you know. No connection. How do we get this into D.C.? into USA, into the world, corporate, into the homes, into children's and schools. Public schools can't have foreign religions, I- even yoga. Yoga and meditation has been kept out of public schools for the most part for all these decades. Now there's some smatterings of it. Why? Because it's become secularized. So now you have secular yoga in every YMCA in the world. The Christians don't fear it. Are you with me? Even though the Pope himself Pope Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger a few, 10 years ago, called yoga officially. He sent this out in the whole world in an official papal declaration. Yoga is the devil's work. But every YMCA in the world. So now we do have it being studied by National Institute of Health, National Institute of Mental Health, training the caregivers in the army, which are thousands and tens of thousands, medics, doctors, chaplains, uh, at corporate, places, and universities, you know, secular mindfulness. So this is good. This is a good development. It doesn't mean there's no longer Buddhism as a religion, monks, nuns, retreats, philosophy, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. It's still going on in the world. So I don't know where you live. Yeah, but you live here. So you claim that it's all secular mindfulness, but I would dispute that. I think if you go around the Buddhist world, even in America, there's plenty of this going on rites and rituals and robes and foreign languages and everything that has to do with the religious not the secular mindfulness including rebirth and other lives and cosmology and everything that I I said this that has to do with the Buddhism and not just the practice the technique of mindfulness which can be practiced with or without the context of the ism the religion Buddhism but whether you know mindfulness without the context Produces enlightenment or not is a different question than whether it produces stress reduction, better attention span, uh, health benefits, lower blood pressure, uh, makes you happier, and so on. Those benefits may not be totally the same as nirvanic enlightenment, sambhuti, full enlightenment, or arhat, liberated saint, or you know, which is the goal of the schools of Buddhism generally. Just like yoga for health and looks may not be the same as yoga to be one with God, or achieve oneness. Yoga means union, to achieve unity consciousness. But it's a good thing to have yoga for kids or at the YMCA, not just competitive sports or whatever. So those are my thoughts. So both are going on and everything in between. The religious meditation and mindfulness movements and the secular ones. There's really not just one, there's ones and people trying to fill in the middle. You know, there's academic Buddhism also. It's not just stress reduction. Questions, please. We're, oh, we're at the witching hour. Any, any Anybody have any burning questions? You're not burning up about mindfulness like I am? It's a very interesting subject. But, um, you know, the mind can only take us so far. Let's remember the heart and mind, the soul, the spirit, the community, the love. That's all. what's not in just the denatured. Strip down mindfulness. How about soulfulness, heartfulness? My mindfulness trainer friend said, we're working towards a mindful society. I said, that would be good, but how about an enlightened society? How about a loving and peaceful society? How about a wise society? You know, mindfulness is still just a buzzword. I mean, are we even thinking about this? That's what I'm trying to bring out here, more public conversation and thinking about what are we really doing, why and how so we can pass something on to the next generations. People really want and need these things, I believe. Thank you, and thank you, Sharla, for having me here again and for your wonderful work here, for the Dharma and everyone here. Good night.